This week's show is supported by Cardio Women's Initiative. The Cardio Women's Initiative is an incredible program which provides women founders with mentorship, training, and funding. If your business has an environmental or social impact, find out more and apply now via the link in the show notes. Applications close 30th of June, 2023. Hello and welcome to The Crux, the weekly Women's Agenda podcast. In today's ep, we look at the long-awaited release of Kathleen Folwig and the women behind her pardon, the question of how to make school hours more family-friendly, and Philip Lowe's out-of-touch comments that already struggling Australians should cut back on spending and should get out there and do a few more hours' work. Thank you for listening. We are recording this episode of The Crux on the 8th of June, 2023. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm joined as usual by my co-founder and Women's Agenda editor, Tyler Lambert. Hello, Tyler. Hey, Ange. How are you going? Oh, yeah, not too bad. I've been working hard thanks to Philip Lowe's recommendations. Yeah, we just put in a few extra hours between uh, 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. this morning before the kids wake up and just going to crack through and, and make it happen uh, with those rising interest rates, which affects anyone with a mortgage and anyone who rents, really, and basically anyone but those who own their own home. So well done to you who own your own homes outright. I cut down on toilet breaks today just to work that little bit extra harder. <laughs> did, oh wait, did you stop spending on toilet paper? Oh, no. <laughs> no. Oh, That's shit. the problem. All right. Anyway, <laughs> we will get to that story in just a moment. But first, we uh, will share wins for the week. What is your win? Uh, my win this week, I think is a pretty good one, actually. And as someone who comes from the mighty ACT, <laughs> the I am. Mighty ACT <laughs> and then mighty Canberra Raiders. Yeah. <laughs> I am always very proud of, you know, policy initiatives and reform that the capital typically spearheads in this country, let's be real. Um, But this one is a good one. So in an Australian first, free period products will soon be available across the ACT as the period products and facilities access bill was passed this week. So it was introduced by Susan Orr and it's really just a great step towards ensuring equitable access to something that should be free. You know, I think if we're talking about cost of living pressures at the moment, like there has been some research around the fact that, you know, period poverty is a real thing. People can't afford these items and I'm not surprised because it is actually quite expensive it's a definite cost on your monthly grocery bill so I think it's a really good initiative and hopefully other states and territories look to do the same thing but yes the ACT the first jurisdiction in Australia to pass this reform and Yes, so getting shit done. All right, so my win is in the fintech community where women don't tend to lead. And as we know that women don't really get much of the share of the uh, investment into startups in the first place at around, you know, 3% or something for for all female-founded startups. And I'm not sure the figure in the fintech space, but I'm going to guess it's not particularly high because there's not a whole lot of founders or co-founders in this space. I think internationally, Mm. just less than 10% of such businesses actually have a female founder or female co-founder. But uh, this is about the Brisbane-based paper plane, which is bucking the trend. It has raised millions of dollars in recent months and recent years, and it is co-founded and led by CEO Simone Joyce. And they have around 50 employees there and they're growing. They will be doubling over the next few years. 
And I like this win that I'm about to share because it kind of demonstrates the power of women in these positions, what can happen, the flow on impacts for the entire organisation. And we did find some of this in our recent research into small businesses in Australia. So in this case, it is that Paper Plane is offering uh, label-free paid parental leave. So they're removing the secondary and the primary carer labels that tend to happen in paid parental leave policies across much of business in corporate Australia where paid parental leave is offered. And they're basically giving 12 weeks to anyone who becomes a new parent at the company. So that's to moms and to dads, and they can take it over a continuous period. They can take it over two periods. They can take it part-time. And so I think it's pretty good. I like to see this in startups because often startups can also use that kind of excuse, I guess, that you're starting up and you're fast growing and therefore you can't possibly offer any kind of generous paid parental leave, um, but they are proving that she can. And I think they're setting an excellent example. We see this kind of stuff happening in much bigger firms, so it's great to see it happening here and into a small business where we know the majority of Australians actually work as well in small businesses. So yeah, 100%. That's a solid win this week. So a couple of good solid wins. Should we go on to our first story today, which is a good one as well. And it's very long awaited. So Kathleen Folbig was pardoned from prison this week and we reported on the story itself, but we also um, talked about the women advocates behind the government's pardon and, you know, the circumstances behind it and what this actually means. But for those who aren't aware, Folbig was sentenced to 25 years of prison in 2003 for the mysterious deaths of her four children. And she has always denied the killings, but was convicted of smothering them in a trial that relied on circumstantial evidence alone. On Monday, New South Wales Attorney General Michael Daly announced he'd received the preliminary findings of a recent inquiry into Folbig's case headed by retired Chief Justice Tom Bathurst. Uh, Daly said Bathurst had concluded he was firmly of the view that there was reasonable doubt about Folbig's guilt. The reason behind that reasonable doubt is that the children's deaths could have been due to natural causes and expert witnesses to the inquiry revealed a rare gene mutation that may have caused the deaths of Folbig's daughters, Laura and Sarah, and there was also evidence that their firstborn child, Caleb, could have had an underlying genetic disorder that predisposed him to epilepsy as well. So it's being touted as this, you know, huge win for, for science in crime and... I think, you know, it's it's pretty momentous that this has happened. Kathleen Folbig released a statement on it, but there have been, you know, so many women that have gotten behind her from friends to legal advocates to experts in science and medicine. And I think this is a really huge case. And what are your thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what's really stood out to me from the last few days is learning uh, more about the women who have stood behind Kathleen Folbig for all these years. And you just think about how tough that would have been. I mean, obviously so tough for um, Kathleen Folbig, but also when you think about these supporters who really probably have dedicated much of their lives to seeing her pardoned and potentially now seeing this conviction overturned as well. Many of us would have seen now Tracy Chapman in the news over the last few days or even previously we might recognise her from previous media appearances. But just to learn this week, as I did, that she is a high school friend, that they met in the 1980s as students in a public high school in Newcastle. 
I just think that's, you know, really interesting, that lengthy, lengthy friendship that they have. I believe it was Tracy Chapman's home where Kathleen Forby went immediately following her release and where she spent the night. And we did see some of Forby's supporters the next day talking about what that night was like and talking about the fact that they'd had I think they tried to order in some kind of Uber Eats steak situation or something and it never turned up. That that was what I took from this interview and they're laughing about that because that was what Folby really wanted on her first night. But they just sort of talked about just, you know, being able to celebrate Folby, you know, sleeping in her own bed there and just had heaps of adrenaline going. But at the same time, they just had this really lovely evening all together. And just to think about that circle and those friendships, and it is very much women, and it is, you know, it is those friends, um, and it sounds like uh, Folby has, you know, become part of the families of these friends in a way as well, which is, you know, something that is quite touching given, you know, we're talking about what appears and what looks set to be a wrongful conviction and will be overturned, mm. and we've also got to remember the pain that Folby mm. must have experienced with the death of those children, her children. You're right. Like, I think... You hear stories like this and you see friends of Folbig stand up and just get behind her in such a authentic, warm, kind, familial way. And that's such a testament to women's friendships. And I, mm. I'm really happy for her that she has that support on coming out of prison. And it's a really tragic set of circumstances that she's, you know, been languishing there for the best part of 25 years. And, and also, you know, the fact that she's been touted for that entire time as being Australia's worst serial killer, having to endure all of that plus losing her her children. It's just unimaginable. But I really do hope that the conviction is completely squashed. I hope that, you know, she finds solace from these friends ongoing and and I hope that she can kind of get back to some kind of semblance of normality in her life and also, you know, hopefully get quite a lot of compensation out of this whole situation but yeah I mean it's a really huge one obviously the Folbig story has been such a huge one in Australia for a long time and we've had lots of our readers even write in about Kathleen Folbig prior to this happening asking for greater coverage asking for greater support in pushing for her conviction to be squashed so I think there is a lot of support for her out there. Yeah, and um, you mentioned the win for science. I think that's a really big aspect of this too, obviously. So obviously a big mention to Professor Carola Vinuesa, um, who has you know won plenty of awards and things like that for the research that she's done, but she was asked to investigate into this. So she was the lead scientist on it. She teamed up with an ANU um, immunologist and they basically charted Folby's DNA in the hope of trying to identify mutated genes that might explain a genetic susceptibility for sudden infant deaths. And over a few years, and with a larger team of genetic scientists from around the world, they did find that Folby carried this particular gene known as a CALM2G114R, I hope I've said that correctly, which was the likely cause of the deaths of two of her daughters, Sarah Folbig and Laura Folbig. And I mean, it is a win for science and uh, I think friendship and those long-term friendships. And you see things like this and what's happened here with that scientific win. And, you know, maybe it's something that could actually save lives in the future as well. So there's definitely something in that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so to our second story. So less of a win, I guess, uh, than what we've been discussing. But um, we did want to speak about Governor Philip Lowe at the Reserve Bank of Australia. 
we haven't actually ever really spoken about him previously, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think we've written much on him. I've actually, you know, tried to sort of maintain a bit of a, a step away in terms of watching what's been happening over the past year. He's avoided to- our wrath. <laughs> <laughs> not wanting to jump on that very easy bandwagon of, you know, look at him leaving his, you know, eastern suburbs home off to go and raise interest rates again. Um, so today was a bit of a first uh, for, for me and for us to kind of delve into this territory of um It will not be on. a last. Philip <laughs> uh, Lowe, seem- we have you in our sights. <laughs> anyway, so let's get to the story. So we had 12 interest rate rises over the past 14 months, which uh, is a lot for anyone with a mortgage and anyone who might be a renter in a house that has a mortgage and seeing those owners trying to recuperate some of the, the costs and trying to get some support and paying off these mortgages, mm. the types of increases that we're talking about have seen those holding mortgages paying kind of $1,000 extra a month. That's the sort of figures that we're taking. So it is a, a huge chunk of cash. It is making a significant difference. That's on the $600,000 mortgage, according to the stats that I'm quoting today. I'm not saying what your mortgage is at all, Tyler. You might not want to say what your repayments are because you might be able to figure it out. It might be awkward for you. Anyway, so we did have another one of these little hikes on Tuesday, getting kind of familiar territory now. And it is pretty tough because everything else is super expensive as well. And there's also, you know, the idea of the delicate balance of trying to manage inflation as the RBA board we know are hopefully trying to do. I don't don't think they're just sickos or something. That's the first thing. I think that was my first thought on Tuesday. Wow, are they getting a kick out of this or something? Sitting sitting there like Mr. Burns. I don't think it's quite like that, but it can feel like that. Um, Anyway, Philip Lowe always then seems to go and do this conference in front of bankers for some reason. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that is actually a thing that happens after the first Tuesday of every month, but certainly it can feel that way. when you're kind of reading on in the CBD column or looking at the AFR or something a few days later. But he always seems to be talking in front of bankers. I reckon we should get him in front of a bunch of, you know, childcare educators or something instead. <laughs> Angry women. Much more interesting. <laughs> anyway, so on Wednesday at this latest banking conference, um, so uh, Philip Lowe, he talked about the fact that it is obviously a complicated picture on balancing inflation and he stated that mortgage um, – there's not a huge amount of defaults occurring on mortgages, even though the repayments are increasing significantly. But he did share this one comment that just sort of once again suggested the need for a reality check. And I say that because there have been other comments as well. And so this one, and it is one line, and it just kind of speaks to the fact that like maybe before saying this kind of line, you should think again, Um, but also um, maybe kind of, you know, check into your own experiences and consider if you're not able to consider how difficult some people could be finding this current situation and that how there are no easy answers to the current situation then maybe there are other people who might consider doing your role which we know that will happen later on in the year but anyway Basically, his line was that if people can cut back spending or in some cases find additional hours of work, that would put them back into a positive cash flow position. Oh, finally I thought about that just for a for, second. I just want to say, this is the governor of the RBA. So oh, my goodness. It's like if, if you work more and spend less, like <laughs> somehow 
you will likely end up, I mean, if you're not going to end up in a positive cash flow, that, that's going to be a real issue. But I mean, th- there is all these situations. So stating the obvious, but then there's the situation, the fact that there is a huge chunk of the population where that is just not possible. Yeah. At all. So obviously he's looking at this in terms of, you know, low unemployment rate. And that's the thing. This is a weird period where unemployment is staying low. So there is plenty of work out there. There are jobs out there, you know, at least for certain industries and things. But at the same time, we are, you know, seeing this inflation. So it is a strange period. And the idea is that, I mean, from I imagine from his thinking, he's kind of thinking this big business approach. They want more talent. They want, you know, more productivity, whatever, more people to come on to to keep working and to just be earning more money as this solution. But that is just not the reality of because a lot of people just do not have the capacity to do any more more work or even any work, any paid work at the moment, given unpaid caring responsibilities. They might be caring for young children, for an older parent. They might be caring for somebody with a disability. They may have a disability themselves. They may have an illness themselves. It's just not realistic to think that people can suddenly go and work extra hours and be spending less. And he might also say that even for those people where that is a possibility, there's also the sense of the past few years actually being quite exhausting. And as we know from the research that we've done, people are saying their mental health is actually pretty precarious right now. And maybe going and throwing yourself into yet more hours of work is not the Mm. best thing, even if it Oh, I don't know. Anyway, oh, look, there are so yeah. many. There are, you could unpack that statement all day, but the reality is that it is just dinosaur talk. It's so out of touch. It really doesn't at all capture what the reality of most Australians is. And and to just glibly say, you know, find some more additional hours of work to do. And yeah, but like, where do you actually find it? Just, it's not really that easy as well. Like, do you go yeah. and find them in? Like, your car on the Uber app or I'm just like, how does it happen so quickly? It's not like most of us can't just go and ask an employer for additional hours of work necessarily. A lot of people are contracted in a way that they can't just go and work additional hours of work. It's so bad. It's really <laughs> like it's akin to like Kim Kardashian telling women just to work harder and oh, then they'll get one. their business. Yeah. That was a good one. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean though? Like it's just so out of touch. It's like – I just don't even, there are no words. I mean, obviously your piece today kind of captured what we're all thinking about this, but people are really struggling right now and to just minimise that feeling and that experience that so many Australians are having is really, I think, repugnant and I do think that there will be fallout from from this. I get that it's a complicated situation. I wouldn't want to be in Philip Lowe's shoes necessarily. I think the government needs to be stepping in to do more at this point because clearly just like rate rises every two seconds is not the answer (laughs) and it's not actually getting us back to a place that we need to be anyway. So there needs to be a greater level of scrutiny on, on what is actually done here. But I mean, comments like that are just completely unhelpful and I would forgive him if I thought he was just kind of talking off the cuff, but a man like Philip Lowe would be briefed in on pretty much everything that he is doing and saying and have speechwriters and whatnot. So I don't. That's my first thought is that like surely there are speechwriters who would kind of vet every single line and look for these things to make sure that there's no kind of. They have PR teams behind him. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's just just outrageous. 
I mean, it also, like, he's had some interesting things in front of Senate estimates. I mean, it's even that idea of um, the comment from a couple of years back of saying that interest rates won't rise until 2024. And he was saying that at a very interesting time. It was a pandemic. And, but still, that whole sense of, like, don't, don't say that. Like, like, of course, if people hear that from the governor of the Reserve Bank, they might think that interest rates are not going to rise over the next couple of years. Like, again, it should have spoken to, you know, just – reality to think well there could be a possibility that that things will change and that a lot of people could be in a lot of trouble if they have possibly gone and taken a mortgage on this idea that the repayments are not going to increase over this period so and one last point sorry and I know we have we have done this one to death but like one last point is there are you know hundreds of single women single mums out there that are really struggling at the moment Maybe they have mortgages themselves, but more likely they have they're in renting situations. And as you mentioned, those rents are going up astronomically all the time. So it isn't just a matter of people just being in cushy enough positions to have a mortgage to begin with. It's people that are already in very vulnerable situations who were already kind of putting all of their resources into, you know, funding rents to begin with that have tripled over this period. And there's not enough regulation in place to stop that happening, for starters. It's far more complex situation than Philip Lowe's comments led on. Um, as we've been talking, I just saw this tweet come up from The Australian and it's quoting former Labor Senator Stephen Connery. We all remember him. Uh, and basically he says, Philip Lowe has lost the plot. He's given the middle finger to the Australian public as he gets shuffled out the door. <laughs> sort of feels like that. <laughs> it's like he just throws a little grenade at the... <laughs> That's pretty good. I like anyway, it. Anyway, yeah, on to the next story then. Uh, yes. So next story is looking at a piece that CEO of The Parenthood and our former editor and good friend Georgie Dent uh, wrote this week that looked at whether school hours are sexist, uh, which is an interesting one. And I think it's worthy of a conversation, really. So Georgie proposed extending the hours children can be at school till 6pm to accommodate the juggle parents face and she received an influx of responses from people eager to discuss the topic. I am not surprised. I have heard this um, a lot. I'm sure you have too, Ange, and particularly felt it because you have school-aged children and you, you know, run a business and it's not always the easiest thing in the world to do. But Georgie emphasised that an important conversation we should be having is how to make school hours Um, or schools more family-friendly, as most Australian households need both parents to be making an income in this cost-of-living crisis. Um, And this leaves fitting nine-to-five working hours between a nine-to-three school day and school holidays, 12 weeks of school holidays, I might add, an impossible game of Tetris that no amount of time management can overcome. She also noted that the answer isn't to extend school hours because obviously teachers and educators are already stretched way too thin that would just be such an unreasonable proposition. But she said, you know, whether it's enough paid parental leave to recover from childbirth, bond with a newborn, support siblings through the transition and enjoy the baby bubble, access to child and family health service, early education and care, access to a workplace that is accommodating, all of these supports for parents are actually critical supports for children too. And the needs of children and parents are not mutually exclusive. Um, So we need to look at what the answer is there, whether it's extending, you know, maybe after school hour uh, options or just kind of at least having a conversation around this. 
Ange, thoughts? Um, yeah, I just can't imagine telling my kids to stay at school until six o'clock. Um, but I mean, so it's, yeah, that's not going to work. Um, but I have to say that I feel like I feel more pressure as a working parent now than I did when my kids were younger. And I don't know if that's on account of there being three now, I guess that happens, but like, um, it's, I feel more pressure because I mean, we do school stuff and we do childcare, one still in childcare. Maybe when the other children were in childcare, I mean, you've got the expense factor. So there's that aspect of it. So obviously it's definitely cheaper to only have one rather than two in daycare as opposed to, um, or even three. I never had to have three there at the same time. But I definitely found the school thing quite overwhelming very quickly. And I still find it very overwhelming because, first of all, the hours don't just match. Um, if you can get access to after-school care, that's great. But maybe your kid does not necessarily want to be there. And I know that that's kind of in many ways, uh, you know, they've got to just kind of tough it out. But I think a lot of kids do get to a point where they will start saying, well, I'm old enough to not be there. And then you've got to kind of manage that and think about that. And we are certainly going through that now. Or they don't want to be there on certain days or even, you know, they have to go there, but you have to go through. It's quite an emotional process on, you know, saying that, well, that's what it is because we've got work on those days. So it is quite complex. And then there's added things. And the reality is that schools are kind of run by uh, mothers. <laughs> like yeah. they, they are. Like so much of what goes on in schools is made possible thanks to the unpaid work of uh parents and uh, typically majority mothers that's not to say dads don't do anything but mothers certainly do a lot more and that's everything from like school excursions to the canteen to often like a clothing shop and things like that to reading the parents who volunteer and go in to do reading every single day um, in in our school there are parents who are invited to come in every day so that kids can get that opportunity to do reading which is an amazing thing for for kids but there is that sense of wanting to be involved in that, of wanting to be involved in the friendships that your kids make, you know, in terms of their parents and getting to know those families and everything like that. And it is, it is quite tough. And I think maybe in many ways the hours itself are kind of sexist. And I always try to think back, I was like, why did it feel easier with childcare? And I think it did feel easier because it was a day. It was like you could, you'd work part-time and you'd work your three days or something and it was very clear set days Whereas the school hours and I kind of work throughout the week around hours and around like activities and stuff that we have on after school now and it's not clean. <laughs> like it's not, nah. yeah, and, and, you know, sure, we're not getting the illnesses and all that and that's all really hard as well. And obviously it's super hard trying to explain to a three-year-old why they're going to, you know, if, they, if they're getting really upset as you drop them off. But, yeah, school, it's just this constant of – you need to be there in some parts of their education. You need to be there in terms of the drop-offs and the pick-offs and then making lunches and then um, after-school activities and drop-offs and um, school holidays as well, which every 10 weeks come around and all of a sudden you don't know what to do with your kids for a couple of weeks as you try to work. So, And I say yeah. that from a parent who does have – I mean, I have to work pretty long hours and I work at all times of the night, but I can at least have some flexibility um, and I always wonder how people are managing when they do need to get and go somewhere physically for their job, which so many people do. I mean, and look, it's a tricky conversation because, you know, I don't necessarily think that like, you know, holding kids up at school till 6pm is the answer either. Like I, I think it's important to have time at home and to, you know, be safe in that environment too and to have, you know, clear lines between your life and, and you know, for kids I think that's important. But 
I think that a greater conversation needs to be had around, you know, increasing flexibility for all parents. Maybe it's about subsidising care initiatives throughout the holiday period um, as well. So, you know, I think that there are a few different things that they could look at. I think it's a valuable conversation to be having. And I thought that Georgie's piece was a good thought provoking one. Uh, and any final thoughts before we wrap up today? Uh, yes, I do have some final thoughts. So I have seen a lot of photos coming up across social media of um, New York particularly, which is having this you know massive bushfire smoke issue at the moment. And that's from the Canada fire smoke, which is drifting south. And so basically tens of millions of people in the US are under air quality alerts over the past like 24 hours or so. The photos look eerily similar to Sydney, December 2019 and 2020 and across um, many of the other states around New South Wales, across those summer bushfires that we experience. It is like eerily similar. Like you see the the orange and you see like the skylines just look really kind of dystopian and uh, creepy. And it shows that, you know, these events, again, there are patterns here of these events coming up over and over again. Um, So Los Angeles in 2020, San Francisco in 2020, New York, they're seeing it in 2023, um, talking about, and I just saw this from um, a couple of things that have come up on social media that the last four years, uh, these cities have experienced the worst day of bushfire smoke in recorded history. So just in the past four years for those four major cities. It got me sort of just reflecting back on that. I quickly looked at a couple of pieces and we forget this, but hundreds of people died as a result of that bushfire smoke, according to the Royal Commission, and thousands of people were hospitalised um, and it impacted 80% of the Australian population at that time. And I just think they're things to keep in mind because uh, we can, you know, you look at these photos and it just you can make all these comments, you can share it across social media, um, but we've got to remember that these things are happening more frequently and they are having really deadly and serious consequences. And on that note, uh, that does conclude the podcast for another week. So thank you for listening to The Crux. A reminder that you can catch up on all the stories that we've shared on our website and you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter at womensagenda.com forward slash subscribe thank you for listening